Well, hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome to the Rock Community Church. We are honored that you're here. And for all of you fathers, happy Father's Day to you all. Okay, good. All right, fantastic. The reason I hesitated wasn't that I didn't know what I was going to say next. Is on the first two services, Saturday night, in the first service Sunday morning, I said, Happy Father's Day, fathers. And the place was silent. None of the ladies clapped. And so I said, to them, have we been that bad this past year that we don't even deserve maybe one uh, thank you or something? But uh, thank you so much. Men, fathers, um, what can I say? You mean so much to us as this church and so much to a family, so much to a community. There's nothing, Sally, there's nothing really like um, a man that really, really understands and loves the Lord. Um, you're going to see that today in the life of, of Paul. It's just an amazing place, this place in Scripture. I can see now why Dr. McGee is so enthralled by chapter 26 of the book of Acts. While you're turning to Acts chapter 26, would you please put the other slide up so I can read it? And Wednesday the 26, 25th, Wednesday the 25th of, of uh, June, this month, we will be having at 6.30 in the evening in the multi-purpose room the kickoff study of the book of 1 John. That is Wednesday, June the 25th. It's in the evening, 6.30 in the evening in the multi-purpose room. We're going to have plenty to eat, a lot of hot dogs and hamburgers and all the fixings and a, a, a special amount of, uh, of just laughter and a good time with one another, uh, worship of the Lord and also some fellowship and we're going to do a kickoff on the first, the book of First John. It's a great, great book. Can't wait to begin to study it. Um, if you can't RSVP, in other words, if you, you're not certain you can make it, but you're going to try and be there, you can come at the last minute. You don't need to RSVP. We just want to have as many. In fact, in fact uh, honestly, we would like every single man in our church to be a part because really to be a father, to be the man that God's called us to be, we need to be a, a people who study the Word of God and hold each other accountable. And so uh, MOB, M-O-B, Men of the Bible, that is what we, uh, we proclaim here at this church is of, of utmost importance. And so uh, I, I pray to see every single one of you men there. Uh, we're going to have a great, great time. Acts chapter 26. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Um, Paul comes to the very apex of his his message. We took us last week uh, from chapter 25, and I think about verse 23 or 4, to uh, chapter 26 and verse 11. And what we saw last week was Paul was describing to them that he he wanted to persecute the, the church. He wanted to persecute believers. That was his purpose in life. Now, you, you don't need to, you can't forget that that as we've said over and over again, Paul's motive of being here before King Agrippa and Bernice and before uh, uh, Festus and, and his wife and all of the, the people in that community of prominence, whether they be the military leaders, the political leaders, the religious leaders, they are all there to hear from this one guy that so many of them had heard about but perhaps had not really seen in person. And into the room, when Festus calls him in, comes in Paul. He is shackled. He is probably wearing prison clothes. And here he is standing before all of these people in all of their glory. And he is of central importance to this time. And as I mentioned to you before, as he is speaking to 
King Agrippa and Festus and all of them else. He is, with all of his heart, trying to draw them to a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And you're going to see it today probably as clearly as you ever saw it. And King Agrippa realized this. Do you remember what King Agrippa said? Kind of cheat ahead. Look ahead at verse 28. King Agrippa said to Paul, Paul, if, if, if you don't stop this in a short time, you're going to persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul made the most amazing statement of statements in the Word of God. When he says in verse 29, Oh, oh King, I wish to God. I would wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, doesn't matter to me. Not only you, but everyone who hears my words this day and throughout Scripture as we get to read it, might become such as I am. In other words, a person who is in love with his Savior, a person who knows and understands his God and has his sins forgiven. Here's this man in prison, in chains, in prison garb more than likely, standing before the best of the best of the elite of that city in Caesarea and from the surrounding areas. And he is saying to them, I, I don't want to be like you. I, I would love for you to be like me, except for these chains. That was the purpose of Paul's sharing before these people in Caesarea, to be like him. That's why we can study this place in Scripture and see if we cannot conform ourselves into not only the image of Jesus Christ, of course, what the Scriptures tells us we should do, but understand and see what Paul is like and see if we cannot be like him. Have our passion flowing from us, our love for our Savior just flowing from us. You know, when I, when I wrote down the, the, the title, I cannot pick titles. Don't kick against the goads. This is the third time Paul's going to give in his testimony on the road to Damascus. The bright light, Jesus Christ saying to him, why are you persecuting me? But this time Jesus says, it's hard for you, Paul, to kick against the goads. And so I, I, I thought, well, that's a good title, I guess. You know, I, I don't know titles. But the real title of this should be Obedience. The real issue within this message that Paul is giving to the people is his obedience to follow the call of God regardless of what lies before him. It is is an amazing place in Scripture. And so please, with kind of that as an overview, let's take a look, reading from verse 12 on to the end of this chapter. You, You realize, don't you, that we're almost through with the book of Acts. Um, we, we only have two more chapters to go, chapters 27 and 28, and we will finish chapter 26 today. And so we will be moving on to um, probably something in the Old Testament after we get through studying this particular book. Let's read, though. Verse 12. Well, let me do 11 first because it kind of sets it up. Paul says in verse 11, As I punished them often in all synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Of course, you know, them are people of the way. Of course, you know, them are believers, Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, whatever you want to call them. So he goes on to say now, verse 12, let's read. While thus engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. 
And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and uh, and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Paul says in verse 19, Consequently, King King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea, of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. And so having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. Verse 23, really amazing verse. That the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24 tells us, And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, You are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you but all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. And the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had drawn aside, they began talking to one another saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Not a statement. As we see over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, everyone that puts Paul on trial says he's he's not done anything worthy of death or imprisonment for that matter. And yet what we see is Paul in prison. For two years he has been waiting. For two years, he has been waiting for the call upon his life, and that is to go to Rome. If you'll take a look back in your Bibles, look at chapter 23, verse 11. Do you remember when Paul was in distress? Jesus Christ came to him in a vision at night and said, Take courage, Paul. And then I'm going to paraphrase the rest of that verse, verse 11 of chapter 23. He says, What you have proclaimed here at Jerusalem, I say to you, you will proclaim also in Rome. And so it's not Festus, it's not King Agrippa, it's not anybody that's sending him to Rome, but Jesus Christ himself. It says, Paul, you are going to testify to me in Rome, or for me in Rome. 
You know what's interesting about that is if you read ahead, which I did, in the 27th chapter, what happens to Paul? He goes to Rome. He's on his way to Rome. He's on his way to Rome on a ship. You know what happens? The ship gets in a a wreck. It, it, It becomes in high seas. It starts to fall apart. Everybody on the ship becomes frightened. Paul becomes the very person who he is in front of those men, all of those men who are taking him to Rome as a prisoner. He becomes their leader telling him, you're not going to die. Don't worry. Everything's fine. God's going to take care of us. I stopped and thought to myself when I read that, which I will say to you next week or whenever we get to the place where there's a shipwreck. Think about it. God told Paul, you're going to Rome. And yet, Paul almost gets in a situation where he thinks he he might die on the way to Rome in a shipwreck. And I think, why is it there are so many bumps in the road as believers? And when it does happen to us, why is it that we think we're something wrong is happening to us? Here's Paul, told by God, you're going to Rome, and lo and behold, here's Paul in a place where it looks like he's about to die in this shipwreck. You and I maybe complain when trouble comes our ways. We ought not to. Just because God has told you or me to do whatever He's called us to do doesn't mean there's going to be a smooth sailing throughout the whole adventure that we're on in this thing called life as we walk and serve the Lord. There will come difficulties into our lives. But here's Paul said by King Agrippa and, and, and Festus and Bernice, this guy's not guilty of anything. And yet we see him in prison. As we uh, get into this study, I want you to listen as closely as possible. I I want you to do what we do here every week, and that is to put me aside. I know I'm going to be the speaker. I know that. But what I'm going to ask the Lord to do is what I ask every week, and that is to reveal himself to you. There's no way in this this world that I could ever propose what what you're going through. And, and church is, is a time for us to gather together, learn about the Lord, and allow the Lord to minister to our needs, whatever they may be that particular time and that particular day. And so I ask always that the Lord would put me aside, that I would just get out of the way. Last night as I was preaching this message, man, I, I mean, I got convicted so much. I was the one that put it together. I was the one that wrote it. I was the one that did all the things about what we were going to say in here. And yet in the middle of the message, I thought to myself, oh, my God. I didn't say this to anyone out loud. I'm saying it to you now. Oh, my Lord, you're right. I'm wrong. And and in in the quietness of my heart, while I was giving this message, I was asking the Lord to forgive me and help me to become more that man that he wants me to be. That's what the Word of God does. It's it's here to convict and comfort and, and to move you and me into the place that God wants us to be. And so I pray that for us. Let's pray right now. Dear Father in heaven, Would you do the very uh, blessings that um, really only you can do? And that is, Father, open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds that we might behold wonderful things from your word, the law that we've just read. Move me aside, I beg of you, Father. Speak to us, each of us. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Challenge us, Father, to become the men and the women, the young people, older people, that we are to be in in our walk with you until the day that you take us home with you. Move us, dear Father. Move us in the direction that you so see fit. We'll give you thanks and we will praise you, of course, dear Father, as 
as we have just sung your praises. And so now, Father, we preach your praises. And we thank you for Paul, that he might be a man that was faithful to you and obedient, Father. Regardless of what went through his life, he never lost his trust and his faith in you. May we be the same, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay. Paul, not content to just chase the, 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 the Christians out of Jerusalem, now asks for and gets a, a letter from the chief priests to go to Damascus, to go to a foreign country, to go there and be able to take any of the believers and, and, and put them in chains and bring them bound back to Jerusalem so that they might be put on trial, some of them perhaps killed, innocent people. That's Paul. That's Paul's desire. He kept pursuing them. And now an event takes place in his life that we have read about two other times that literally transformed his life and millions of others, I might add. Perhaps you, for certain me, making a major turning point of history. On his way to Damascus in verses 12 and 13, Paul, as we've heard before, saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Now he and his fellow travelers fall to the ground. That we have heard before as well. And Paul heard a voice saying to him in the Hebrew dialect, in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, the voice says in verse 14, Why are you persecuting me? And then the voice says something that Paul tells them that we have not heard before. Jesus Christ asks him, tells him, it's hard, it's hard for you, Paul, to kick against the goads. Now, a goad was a sharp rod used by a, 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 a fellow that was taking care of, of, of cattle or whatever to get them to move. He would poke them in the, in the hiney, I guess, with, a, with this sharp rod, and, and they would kick back, and, and they wouldn't hurt the rod. They would only hurt themselves when they kicked against the goads. And what our Lord was saying in essence to Paul, Paul, you are now doing something that is amazingly stupid. Like an ox kicking against a gourd, you are now fighting your battle against God Almighty and you're going to lose. And I believe at that point in time, as we've already studied for the very first time, Paul knew for certain that he wasn't just fighting against believers. He wasn't just putting these people into jail and having them killed, but now he is taking on God as well. You know, when I got to that point, I I stopped and I thought for a moment, how many of us here, how many of us here have a tendency to argue against what God is doing in our lives? You know, I'm not happy with this. I'm not this, that, that, or the other. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever kind of try to better ourselves, but some of us take, take it out on God. And God is saying, that's downright stupid. You're just kicking against a gourd. You're not going to hurt me. You're only going to hurt yourself. It is tantamount in your life and my life. It is really important for you and me to find out what is God's will for us in this life in which we live. And then once we find out what it is, we are to follow it, to comply, to be obedient as soon as possible. And so Paul, stunned and blinded and terrified, I'm certain, who was once a persecutor of Christians, says in verse 15, who in the world, I put, I am adding in, in the world. That's probably what I would have said. Who in the world are you, Lord? And the reply is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
Watch, wait now, stop and think. Paul is saying these things in front of this, this grand audience of people hanging on his every word. What he has just said to them is that Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is speaking to him. And Jesus Christ has just confronted him, which in tantamount he is saying to them, he is probably saying the same thing to you. He is trying to reach you as well. Paul is now claiming to the audience that is listening to him and us that the one whom he at one, at one time hated and despised, the one whom he considered a blasphemer, a false teacher, the one whom he believed was threatening the very sacredness of his religious beliefs of Judaism is just who he had claimed to be over and over and over again when he was on this earth before he went to the cross. He is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Now, in verses 16, 17, and 18, Paul tells them why he was in these different cities telling the people about Jesus Christ. His orders came from none other than God Almighty. Look at verse 16. Jesus says to Paul, Get up, stand on your feet, For this purpose I have appeared to you and appointed you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you. He says in verse 17, Paul, I'm rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am going to send you. And verse 18 is one of the most powerful verses. Verse 18 and verse 23 are amazing verses in all of this speech that Paul is making. Paul says, I am, Jesus Christ says to Paul, I am sending you to the Gentiles and I want you to open their eyes. I want them to turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive the forgiveness of their sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified. That means set apart by faith in me. Paul is telling them, this audience that he is speaking to, all of these people in all of their best clothes, he is looking at them and telling them he was called to them to open their eyes to turn from Satan to God. He implied that all the unbelievers were blind, all of them, and they are being led by by blind leaders, you must see. Turn with me, please. Hold your place here. Look at Matthew chapter 15. You really must turn there because he is now implicating. Imp, he is now uh, implicating. Implicating? Is that the right way of saying that? It's close enough. Yeah. He is, he is judging the Sanhedrin as well. He's calling them blind guides who are leading the blind. In, in Matthew chapter 15, it's a great, great read. Uh, Jesus Christ is, is, uh, is, is confronting the religious leaders. And he is telling them that they are, f- they are asking people to follow after their man-made traditions which have nothing to do with God Almighty. And he calls them in a statement, you are all hypocrites. Look, let let me turn back with you. I I, kind of was talking about it, but I didn't turn back because I don't know it all by heart. But but look here. He says this, verse 17, You hypocrites, you rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. 
He says, in vain do they worship me. Their teaching is doctrines, the precepts of men. He says, your traditions, your man-made traditions are standing between you and God. And he says to them, you are a bunch of hypocrites. I love verse 12. Verse 12 was, it's just great. The disciples came to Jesus Christ and said to him, uh, do you, do you, do you know? That the Pharisees were offended when they heard the statement. I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, you better than know they were offended. That's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to make them think that they are nothing but hypocrites because they're following their man-made traditions. And then he says in verse 14, three of the saddest words in all of the Bible, as far as I can find it. He says... When, when, when Peter came to him and the disciples, and they said, Lord, when, when someone sins against us, um, how often should we forgive them? You remember what Peter said? Should we forgive them seven times? Like that's really something, you know. Because after two or three or four times, you finally give up on the person and say enough. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Not seven times, but what? Seventy. In other words, always. And he kept telling his disciples, go after him. Tell him about me. Tell him about me. Tell him about me. Tell him about me. But he says to his disciples here in verse 14, three words, leave them alone. Oh my gosh, those are the most, those are the most harrowing, harrowing words I've, I've, you could ever read because it is God that has to draw you and me to come to know and believe in him. And if he says, leave them alone, he is saying, leave them alone. They're bent on going to hell. He says in verse 14 of chapter 15 of Matthew, leave them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both of them are going to fall into the pit. And so Paul was telling, if we go back to Acts chapter 26, he is telling these dear people there in this auditorium in Caesarea that he has been called to them to open their eyes to turn from Satan to God Paul is telling them as well as you and me that genuine conviction and genuine salvation results in a transformed life verse 18 you turn from darkness to light and you have your sins forgiven let me read verse 18 to you in whole turning from darkness to light and from the dominion of satan to god so that you might receive we may receive the forgiveness of our sins would you do me a favor keep looking at verse 18 because our sins are forgiven we receive something enormously important we receive an inheritance it says in verse 18 among those who have been sanctified set apart by faith in me this voice called jesus christ said to Paul, and he is now saying to these people, what inheritance? What do we receive? Hold your place here. Turn with me to First Peter, please. While you're turning to First Peter, listen to these words. Paul wrote later in the book of Romans, Blessed are the people whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person, Paul wrote, whose sin the Lord will not take into an account. In other words, our sins have been separated from us when we trust and believe in Jesus Christ as far as the east is from the west. And then God says, and I will remember your sins no more. No more. And we receive at that time an inheritance. And, and here in First Peter chapter 1, Peter writes about our inheritance. He says in verse 3, this whole, all of First Peter is, is, is absolutely remarkable, but, but, but these few verses here are just, they're like, 
the holy of holy grounds. It's, it's like a, a place that you should get to understand and know in your Bible. Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy... His great mercy has caused you and me, caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I've said to you over and over again that we at this church, Easter to us is every day. Every day we worship a risen Savior. We just celebrate Easter on the time that everyone else celebrates Easter. And we tell people who come and visit us that day how much this day means to us as believers. But to you and me all year long... The resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is critical to our walk with our Savior. And so Peter writes, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, here's what we obtain because of that. Verse 4, look, we obtain an inheritance which is, hold on, imperishable. It is undefiled. It will not fade away it is reserved in heaven for you verse 5 goes on to tell you and me it is also protected by the power of god through faith that's our part our part is faith once we believe in faith we obtain an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled it will not fade away it is reserved in heaven for you and for me by the power of god almighty through the faith that we have for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what Paul was talking about to these dear people in this auditorium in Caesarea. And that's what he's saying to your heart and my heart here as we read through this great place in Scripture in Acts chapter 26. Truly one of the great places in the Word of God. It is a message beyond any message that probably you'll ever see or read. Back to Acts chapter 26, please, and look at verses 19 through 23. That tells us that our Lord's call to ministry, like His call to salvation, is a sovereign act. It demands a human response of obedience. Look, when Jesus Christ causes you to know and to think about Him, when He causes you to want to come to believe in Him, it's a human act. You and I must make a decision and say, Yes, Lord, I trust and believe in You. Please, I would, I want salvation. I make a human response to that call. But it doesn't stop there. And so many believers believe that's the end result. That isn't. It's just the beginning. Because once He calls you to salvation, He also then calls you and me to ministry. And that too demands a response of obedience. And so many of us are saved. We've We've answered that call of obedience, but we sit back and we wait. And I don't know what we're waiting for, but we don't get involved doing the ministry that God has called us to do. And that takes a human response of obedience. And He's given every single one of us a call to do something in this life in which we live to serve Him, to reach others for the cause of Christ. And some of us are not obedient to that call. Look what he says. Paul says in verse 19, he says to King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient. I didn't prove disobedient, King Agrippa, to that heavenly vision. But I kept on, verse 20, I kept on declaring it. That kept on declaring is an act of a verb. It, it, it means he's doing it over and over again. He's not going to stop. It's continual. He says, I kept declaring both to those in Damascus first, then in Jerusalem, and then throughout the region of Judea. I'm in verse 20, by the way. 
and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, perform deeds appropriate to repentance. The word repentance there is really important. It is in the Greek M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A. It involves a change of mind, but it also involves a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. It's one thing to become a Christian and have a change of mind. I want Jesus Christ into my heart. But it also requires a change of behavior. You can't ask Christ in your heart and still live the same lifestyle you always lived. There needs to be a change in our behavior. And the way that happens, Paul says, is we turn to. The word turn to is E-P-I-S-T-R-E-P-H-O in the Greek. It describes a sinner turning to God. It describes someone who is, let's say God's back here somewhere, and we're going merrily on our way, away from God this direction. And we repent. We have a change of mind. And also we have a change of behavior. And so we turn. We turn to. We turn away from. And we turn to God. We start walking towards Him as an act of obedience. Why obedience? Obedience is everything to us as believers. Obedience is our our change of mind, our change of behavior, and our turning to God. Jesus says in Luke 22, 42, Not my will, but what? Yours be done. And so Paul says in verse 21, look, for this reason, because I I, I was obedient to this call, he says, some Jews seized me in the temple. They tried to put me to death. But he says in verse 22, having obtained help from God, listen, when God calls, God supplies. Always, always, always. When God asks of you to do something, he will see it through. It is God who is moving in your life. It is God who protects and watches over you and me. He, when He calls, He will help. He will provide. Just as Paul said. He said, I I could have been put to death. I could have been put to death myriads of times. But no, I obtained help from God. King Agrippa and all the rest of them who were listening. And he says, I stand to this day. Verse 22 again. I stand to this day testifying both to small and great stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. And then verse 23 is just like verse 18. It's it's an amazing verse. And here's what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ, the Messiah, was going to suffer. And that by reason of His resurrection from the dead, again, Paul talks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He would be the first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul said back in verse 19, consequently, Paul says, I didn't prove to be disobedient to the heavenly vision that I received. You see, obedience becomes the end product of the Christian life. Obedience, it's everything to you and me. Now we're going to look at a few verses. We're going to look at Romans 6, 16. Then we're going to look at Acts chapter 5. Then we're going to look at Hebrews 11 and John 14 in kind of quick order. Because I want you to hear these things. Obedience as the end product of your and my life. In Romans 6.16, Paul writes these words. Do you not know, he says, that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, when you and I accept Jesus Christ, we become a slave of His. We become a servant of His. We become an ambassador, a child of God, and we are expected to be obedient. And so he says, when you present yourself to someone as a slave for obedience, you are a slave to the one whom you obey. Now, there's two ways to it. You either obey sin, which results in death, or you are obedient to God, which results in righteousness. Obedience is the end product of the Christian life. Also, obedience acknowledges that God's in authority. Go back to Acts and look at Acts chapter 5. One verse, though. 
in Acts chapter 5, the disciples were on trial before the, the, San, before the chief priests and, 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 and the religious leaders. And they, they gave him an edict. They said, I want from this day forward, I don't want you to say anything more. Am I going too fast? I don't want you to say anything more about this Jesus Christ. He is not to be in your vocabulary anymore. And they say in Acts chapter 5 verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered them and said, Look, we must obey God rather than men. We can't do what you've asked. Our call is to obey our God. Obedience acknowledges the one who has authority over our lives, namely God. Obedience also is the expression of your trust in God, your faith in Him. Best example is Hebrews 11:8, Abraham. Back in the Old Testament, God called Abraham. His name was Abram then. He said, I want you to take your family. I want you to leave your father's, your father's home. I want you to go to a place that I haven't even told you about. You, know, you don't know where you're going, but I want you to go. And the Bible says in Hebrews 11:8, by faith, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, did what? He obeyed. He obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing, not knowing where he was going. You know, oftentimes in your life and my life as believers, we want to have all our ducks in a row. We want to know exactly what's happening so that we can make a, a good decision. And sometimes you and I have to just step out by faith. To be very honest with you, that's probably what I've done the most in my life. I'm not bragging. It's because I'm not a visionary. We have visionaries on our our staff, people who see way out there. I think, in essence, I'm like, uh, in football vernacular, I I guess I'd be a, 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 a lineman. You know, just grunting and snot flying everywhere and just hitting people and having fun doing it basically in my life as a believer i've got my head down. i'm like a plow horse i'm just walking along and look up everyone's oh that's where i'm going i see you know it's just not it's just it, it, my trust is in the lord i believe that he's going to see through what he was wants in my life that doesn't mean i shouldn't be a visionary I, I have people around me who see out ahead but i don't it's okay it's okay we don't have to have all the gifts We have to have trust in God. That's an act of our obedience. And an obedience also is a proof of yours and my love of our Lord. You don't need to look it up. You know it. John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, Jesus says, you'll keep my commandments. Obedience is an act of our love to God. And so Paul is saying, King Agrippa, everyone else in that room, I could not be disobedient to the vision that I had of my God. I had to fulfill. I have to fulfill. I will keep on fulfilling what He has called me to do. Finally, let's get to the end. This great chapter ends with both Festus and Agrippa stopping Paul. Festus, in verse 24, after he says what he says in verse 23, that's, that's too much for Festus to deal with. In verse 23, when he says uh, that, that, that basically that Christ was to suffer and that he was going to die and he was going to be resurrected from the dead, Festus says, enough, enough. He says in verse 24 to Paul, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Festus must have thought, you know, my, 
one of my predecessors, the guy that I followed, uh, Pilate, he put Jesus Christ to dead. He killed him. And now Paul's trying to make everyone believe that he's alive, this Jesus, and that of all things he spoke to Paul. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. To which Paul says, I am not out of my mind. I am speaking words of sober truth to you. You know, it's not surprising that Paul would be called uh, insane or mad or going out of his mind. Jesus Christ was accused of the same thing in John 10, 20. It says, many of them were saying of Jesus Christ that he had a demon and he was insane. The reasons for the accusations against both Jesus and Paul is revealed in First First. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It says, The word of the cross to those who are perishing is what? Do you know? It's foolishness. It's just foolishness. The word of the cross to those who are perishing is foolishness. But to those of us who believe, the Bible says, those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You see, for the most part, most people think you and I are crazy for being here today. I mean, I mean being here, studying the Bible, a fairy tale of fairy tales and they think we're insane foolish but we know better we know better and so paul says in verses 25 and 26 no 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 festus i I am not out of my mind not at all what i tell you is of sober truth and then paul does the most amazing thing in verse 27 he looks king agrippa in the eye and he says king agrippa do you believe the prophets i know that you do (laughs) you see He put King Agrippa on a spot. Now, whether he did that on purpose, I don't know. I think he did. Personally, I think he did. You see, if King Agrippa says, yes, I I believe the prophet, he would have to concede then and there that Jesus Christ is the Messiah or deny him. Place Agrippa in a quandary. To admit belief in the prophets was tantamount to his acknowledging Jesus Christ as his Savior. And that would make him look foolish before his Roman friends and also would bring an outrage to the Jewish people that were there. Put them on the spot. I think about that too. How many of us here are afraid to to admit we have a love for Jesus Christ that goes beyond anything else in this world? Listen, when I go to a place that I don't know anybody and it's new to me, one of the first things I'll ever tell them is, you know, I'm a a Christian. I, I say that for a few reasons. To hold myself accountable and to hopefully let them see what that means. And if you and I can confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior here in these four walls and, and around people who know and love us. And if we can't be involved here, how in the world do we expect that we're going to do something out there in the, the world where everyone, almost so many people are against us? We need to stand up for what we believe. We need to trust in the very essence of who Jesus Christ is. So, so Agrippa says sarcastically in verse 28, Paul, in a short time, you're going to persuade me to become a Christian. Now, reading it like that is, is, is good enough, but that phrase is better translated through the, through the Greek language as a question. Paul Agrippa was saying, do you, think, do you think in a short time like this you can persuade me to be a Christian? It's a, it's a statement of arrogance is what it is. And Paul's response is perhaps the greatest response that you and I will ever read. Paul says in verse 29, Oh, King Agrippa, I wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but everybody that hears me this day might become such as I am. In other words, 
might become in, my, in love with my Savior, become passionate, become someone who would have a change of mind and a change of behavior and turn to follow God. Paul's statement is amazing in this manner. Paul is the lowly prisoner in chains. He tells all of these gathered political, mili- uh, military, and, 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 the, and the leaders of that community that he wishes that they were like him. He does not want to become like them. He wishes that they would become like him except for the chains. Well, in verse 31, as we close this, whatever the view of Paul's sanity was, they all agreed in one thing, and that is that he is not done or doing anything that is worthy of death or imprisonment. And so Agrippa summed it all up in view of everyone when he said to Festus, this man, in verse 32, he might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And once again, as we've said over and over again, Paul has found innocent of anything, of any wrongdoing. He's not done anything wrong. All he does is boldly proclaim the gospel because he is being obedient to the one who called him. And now some of the most important people in Caesarea have heard the message of Jesus Christ. And now, after two years in waiting, it is time for the Lord's promise now to be fulfilled. Two years later, what Jesus Christ said in chapter 23, verse 11, Take courage, Paul. I'm going to have you share in Rome the same thing you have shared here in Jerusalem. You're going to Rome. And now he goes. Patiently, I guess, waiting for two years in prison and in chains. He now is off to Rome. And as I said at the very beginning of this message, I say to you now, and what happens? Shipwreck for crying out loud. I mean, come on, God. Can't you give me one smooth road here? That would have been me. I'm dying. That would have been me. Not Paul. As we're going to see in the weeks to come, he gathers all the men around that's scared for their lives and says, "Ah, take courage, we're all going to be okay. As Bill told me in the middle, between the two services, we're going to see the very first surfers in all of uh, the Bible. These guys are going to jump on some boards and and take the waves into the, the shore. And Paul's going to see them through. Father in heaven, you ask for us plain and simple. You ask for us obedience. You've given us the road that we're to travel. All of us have a particular gift that you've given to us. If we don't know it by now, it's, it's really shame upon us. We should know. We should become active enough in whatever it is here at this church that needs to be done that we would find our niche and our place where we can serve you the, the best. Would you open up our eyes to this? And Father, just as we were obedient in our call to salvation, may we be as obedient in our call to ministry. Like Paul. Tenacious. Passionate. Full of love for you. Regardless of what was spinning around him at the time. Lord, I want to thank you for the people in this church. I hope, Father, I don't be too hard and too challenging, but I... I pray that I just do as you ask me to do. seems like sometimes, Father, I just keep harping and harping upon getting involved in it. You know, Lord, it's not for this church. It's for them. It's for them. It's for all of us that we might sense your blessings when we serve you with a 
a heart that's full. And Father, may we find especially our our place of of ministry, our, our place of call. Because once we start doing that, then we will not get tired. We will not grow weary. We will have our passion. It won't won't fail. I know it. I know it. I'm a living testimony of it. Every week will be new and fresh and amazing. It's quite a privilege, Father, knowing you and following you. May we all sense that privilege. I thank you for this time. I thank you for these people. I love them, Father, more than I can put in the Word. You know. You know my heart. I love them so much. Thank you for every person. Now, as we go from here, will you bless us on this Father Day? May families that gather together just have a a wonderful time. Wonderful time. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I do love you all so much. Happy Father's Day, guys, and have a great day. See you next week.